Hello, my name is Deborah Sidaway, and thank you for joining me again as we continue the story of divorce, a series exploring the stories of the bigamists, the bastards, the feminists, and the fornicators who helped shape the law of divorce in England as it exists today. In today's episode, we will conclude the story of Catherine of Aragon's desperate attempts to save her marriage, even as her husband, King Henry VIII, was pushing for a trial to determine whether his marriage to her was unlawful and could therefore lawfully be brought to an end. Would he get the divorce he so desperately wanted? The English trial of the marriage of Henry and Catherine fell to be determined in the Parliament Chamber of the Dominican Friary of London, in Blackfriars as it is known today. As the trial opened, Catherine caused a sensation by choosing to appear in person. Henry, in contrast, had chosen to absent himself from the proceedings, sending a proxy in his stead. Catherine entered the room accompanied by a vast array of her court, together with four bishops. She came with regal solemnity, not to defend her marriage, but to protest against the jurisdiction of this English court. She read, for the record, a copy of her appeal to the Pope, that the only proper forum for the matter to be heard was in Rome. Having made her protest, the judges conferred and informed Catherine that they would make their answer to her on 21 June 1529. When the court reconvened, it was open to the public, and the lower end of the Parliament chamber was spilling over with ordinary men and women keen to observe the royal courtroom drama. Henry was the last of the players to enter the chamber. By then, it was all too clear to Henry that the public sentiment was in favour of Catherine. She had been his loyal and devoted queen, and her people loved her. Anne Boleyn, meanwhile, was despised branded a sorceress and jeered as a whore. Henry was going to have to tread carefully if he was to escape the contempt of his people. He opened his case by asking the court to make a pronouncement as to the status of his marriage, whether it be valid or null, commenting that he had, from the beginning, felt a perpetual scruple in relation to his marriage. But in a statement that all present knew to be false, averred that he hoped that his marriage would be found valid. The court, presided over by Wolsey and Campaggio, rejected the Queen's protest over its jurisdiction to hear the matter and called the Queen to appear. Catherine entered the room with regal dignity and serenity. Once more she protested against the jurisdiction of the court. Once more she appealed directly to Rome. Then, she turned to her husband. This was the man she had loved, honoured and obeyed in accordance with her marital vows. This was the father of her children. This was her king. It was not in her nature to thwart his will. Yet, she berated him for his long silence as to his concerns over the validity of their marriage. What followed could only be described as an undignified marital spat. No doubt stung by Catherine's observation that Henry's scruples had been a recent phenomenon, Henry weakly reverted to meaningless platitudes of his great love for Catherine and his desire that the marriage should be declared valid. But they were empty words, and everyone present at the trial knew them to be false. 
wrong-footed by his wife, and sensing that she was gaining the advantage, Henry then went on the attack, denouncing Catherine's appeal to Rome, reminding her that she was secure in England, and that she had been provided with the counsel she had requested. Not for the first time, Henry underestimated his wife. Catherine's response was not to spar with him, but to leave her dais, make her way to her husband, her sovereign lord, and kneel at his feet. Henry attempted twice to raise Catherine to her feet. Twice he failed, and Catherine made her plea to him in broken English, an apt companion to her broken heart. She reiterated that she had been a virgin when she had gone to Henry's marital bed, stating, And when ye had me at the first, I take God to be my judge. I was a true maid, without touch of man, and whether it be true or no, I put it to your conscience. She all but challenged him to call her a liar, to make what she considered his slanderous allegations against her public. She made a most effective advocate of her own cause, using Henry's own words of love and hope that the marriage would be declared valid to advance her argument that the matter should be sent to Rome. Henry was left with no other option but to agree to allow Catherine to make her appeal to Rome. Catherine raised herself up and exited the court. Henry, floundering in the wake of Catherine's victory, ordered that she be called back in. The crier ordered Catherine, Queen of England, to come into court. But Catherine, drawing on reserves of inner fortitude, held her ground and did not look back. She exited the court with quiet dignity to the cries of support of the public gathered outside. She never deigned to make an appearance before this legatine court again. From that point on, both Catherine and Henry were forced to wait. Catherine could only wait to hear how her appeal to Rome had been received, and Henry impatient for the trial before Wolsey and Campaggio to reach its conclusion. It was understood that the matter was progressing as the king wished, but with judgment set to be given on 23rd of July, there was a problem. Campaggio was having reservations, and it was said that he was inclining towards remitting the matter to the Pope. Indeed, Campaggio and Wolsey had always been hiding very different agendas. Campaggio had been acting under the secret instructions from the Pope himself to try and prolong the trial of the great matter for as long as possible. Wolsey, by contrast, was Henry's man, his minister, with over a decade of performing Henry's dirty work for him, including arranging for the honourable dispatching of the king's discarded mistress, Bessie Blunt, and dispensing with the king's rival for the hand of Anne Boleyn by arranging for an alternative wife for Henry Percy, heir to the earldom of Northumberland. And Wolsey had always assured the king that he had the great matter in hand. However, as the day of judgment arrived and the legate court assembled in the parliament chamber, the concerns regarding Campaggio's willingness to render a judgment proved to be well-founded. Rather than pronouncing in favour of the king, as had been anticipated, Campaggio adjourned the matter until 1 October 1529, the date that Rome would start its new term following summer vacation and the harvest. On 11 September, 
Wolsey and Campaggio formally renounced any power that had been vested in the legatine court to sit in judgment over the marriage of Henry and Catherine, and the trial was aborted. Catherine had won. Henry was furious. Wolsey was finished. He was arrested, stripped of his chancellorship, and his property forfeited. His crime, the illegal use of papal authority in England. But the reality was that he was guilty only of failing to allow Henry to have his own way in the great matter. By November of 1530, Wolsey was dead. The slow and tortuous processes of his own courts had thwarted Henry. Catherine, meanwhile, continued to maintain that for every lawyer or doctor that Henry found who would decide the great matter in Henry's favour, she would give him a thousand who would declare that their marriage was good and indissoluble. They had reached a stalemate. Undaunted, Henry sent his envoys to Cambridge, to Oxford, and to universities across the continent for their opinion as to the status of his marriage to Catherine. Slowly, universities made declarations favourable to Henry, endowing Henry with moral authority for what was to follow. And by August of 1530, Henry had made a momentous decision, one that was to irrevocably change the very fabric of the nation. He decided that the King of England was not, and could not, be subject to the jurisdiction of the Pope. Relying on the custom and privileges of England, Henry averred that no one should have to go outside of his kingdom to go to law, even the sovereign himself. Put simply, Henry had run out of patience. On 11 February 1531, Henry VIII's new title of singular protector, supreme lord, and even so far as the law of Christ allows, supreme head of the English church and clergy, was announced by the convocation, the governing body of the church in England. Henry had taken the first step to separate the Church of England from the authority of the Pope. And while there is some disagreement between historians as to the exact date, one thing is clear, that shortly after the bestowing of the title of the supreme head of the English church on Henry, Anne Boleyn finally achieved her ambition of taking her king to the matrimonial altar. She and Henry married. If it had been any other person, the marriage would have been considered to be bigamous, as Catherine was still living and the great matter still unresolved. Despite Henry's marriage to Anne, Catherine still considered that she was Henry's one true wife, her marriage to be valid, and Anne nothing more than a usurper to her rightful and lawful place. But Catherine had already lost. Her fertile years were behind her, while Anne Boleyn was with child. Fate also intervened with the death of the Archbishop of Canterbury. It was another nail in the coffin of Catherine's marriage to Henry. With the position of the Archbishop of Canterbury vacant, it was an opportune moment for Henry to appoint someone who shared his views on the subject of divorce, someone who might be more pliable to finding in his favour. His eye turned to Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer had long demonstrated, both through word and deed, his belief that divorce was possible. 
The king had Cranmer summoned from Germany to take up the appointment, and he was consecrated on 30 March 1533. He had only one priority on taking up his office as the Archbishop of Canterbury, resolving the great matter and bringing the marriage of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon to an end. Cranmer may have been ambivalent about taking on the position as the Archbishop of Canterbury, but his actions in Henry's favour were decisive. On 23 May 1533, the great matter was finally resolved when Archbishop Cranmer announced the formal decision of the convocation. The marriage was declared null and void. There was no divorce. There was no need for one as the effect of the marriage being declared null and void was that the marriage was to be considered as never having taken place at all. For Catherine, a devout and pious woman, this would have been devastating, as not only did it did it effectively declare that she had been living with a man who was not her husband, but that her beloved daughter Mary, the living shrine to her marriage, had been conceived in sin and was now a bastard, stripped of her inheritance and removed from the line of succession. And on 5 July 1533, to ensure that there was no ambiguity about Catherine's position, a proclamation confirmed that she was stripped of her title as queen and that she would be known as Princess Dowager of Wales, a title she was entitled to by virtue of her marriage to the long-deceased Prince Arthur. Henry wanted no one, not even his own daughter, to stand in the way of his much-longed-for son taking his place as heir to the crown. However, Anne's child was not the son that had been anticipated by all. She gave birth to a daughter, named Elizabeth after Henry's beloved mother, on 7 September 1533. Despite this, and still convinced that he had taken the right course in ending his marriage to Catherine, Henry took steps to pass the pronouncements of the church into law, both in relation to his position as head of the newly established Church of England and in relation to his marital state. He wished to enshrine in parliamentary legislation the demise of his marriage to Catherine and the validity of his marriage to Anne. In 1534, Henry passed the first act of succession by which he voided his marriage to Catherine and regularised that with Anne Boleyn. The act was passed by Parliament on 23 March 1534. However, while the words were those of the Lords spiritual and temporal and the commons in this present Parliament, there could be no doubt that they embodied the views and wishes of Henry. The act gave voice to his wishes, vesting the succession of Henry's crown in his children with Anne, making Elizabeth first in line to the throne and deeming his daughter Mary a bastard. The Act also recognised that any ambiguity over entitlement to the throne could and did lead to civil disorder, or worse, greater fusion and destruction of man's blood, and also pointedly deplored the interference of Rome when it came to matters of succession of title. The act was justified on the basis of the good unity, peace and wealth of the realm, then set out that the marriage between Catherine and Henry shall be, by authority of this present parliament, definitively, clearly and absolutely declared, deemed and adjudged to be against the laws of Almighty God, and also accepted 
reputed, and taken of no value nor effect, but utterly void and annulled, and separation thereof made by the said archbishop shall be good and effectual to all intents and purposes. The words of the act confirmed that there was no divorce between Henry and his discarded queen. Instead, their marriage was declared to be null. The legal effect of this annulment was not to sever the bond of matrimony that they had entered into, but to erase the marriage so that it was as if it had never existed. The implication for Catherine was all that she had feared. The words of Parliament made her a woman who had lived with that man who was not her husband, rendering her a mistress who had given birth to a bastard. The act decreed that the marriage between Henry and his most dear and entirely beloved wife, Queen Anne, should be established and taken for undoubtful, true, sincere and perfect, perfect ever after, and that this marriage was a good and consonant to the laws of Almighty God without error or default. The act purported to establish this fact forever. The act, however, survived for just a little over two years as Henry's tumultuous love life charted its devastating course. Another act of succession would replace it in 1536. You see, Parliament sometimes makes statements purporting to set out the law in perpetuity, but that is not to say that it cannot change its mind when circumstances warranted it. And such a change of circumstances was already brewing for Henry and his beloved Queen Anne. The Act then turned to the issue of succession, providing that on the death of Henry, the crown would pass to his firstborn son with Queen Anne. The Act resonated with Henry's confidence that now that he had rectified the spiritual defects of his marriage to Catherine, a son was sure to follow. Yet despite this confidence, he also provided that in the event of no male surviving to inherit the crown, Elizabeth, as his eldest female issue, was to inherit. Mary was not mentioned. Her name appears nowhere in the act. She was effectively erased, the most distressing consequence of the annulment of her parents' marriage. Yet even in the face of the horror of her disinheritance and her father's refusal to acknowledge her as his legitimate daughter, Mary was spared the worst of Henry's righteous anger. Earlier drafts of the act had referenced Mary's disobedience and rebellious nature. Henry had been persuaded to remove those references from the act as they would serve to accuse his daughter of treason. Henry's compromise was not to mention his older daughter at all. Not content with making these provisions regarding the validity of his marriage and the line of succession into law, the Act also required that any noble or other subject of the realm must give an oath defending the contents of the Act if required to do so by the King. Henry was brooking no arguments and no dissent. He was King. His word was law. The Act concluded with one proviso. It was a final knife in the ribs to Catherine. It was what is known as an interpretation provision, setting out how a particular word or phrase is to be understood. In this case, the provisions within the Act concerned 
the prohibition of marriages that violated the degrees of consanguinity and said that they should always be interpreted as meaning such marriages which were solemnized and carnal knowledge was had. With that one clause, Henry was making his point that he believed that Catherine and Arthur had consummated their marriage. He was all but calling Catherine a liar. On 30th of March, 1534, Henry gave the act his royal assent. Catherine was finished and her health began to fail. Paranoia crept in and she believed that Henry and Anne, his whore, his witch, were attempting to poison her. She kept to her chambers and she ate little. Meanwhile, the political web was closing in around her with ever-tightening threads. The Act of Supremacy of 1534 was passed in the autumn session of Parliament. This act formalised what the Convocation had already decreed in 1531. Henry wanted no ambiguity about his status as head of the church, with the act providing that the king, our sovereign lord, his heirs and successors, kings of this realm, shall be taken, accepted and reputed the only supreme head in earth of the Church of England. In addition, Henry took steps to start eradicating those who defied his will and thwarted his law. He started executing those who refused to take the oath of supremacy, recognizing Henry as the only supreme governor of the realm. He showed no mercy to those who refused to take this oath, and one of the early victims to his zeal were four monks, executed for their treason in refusing Henry's order that they take the oath of supremacy, being hanged until half-choked and cut down before death could spare them the horror of what was to follow, castration and evisceration while still living, before having their entrails burned in front of their faces, before finally being released by the axe separating their heads from their bodies. Catherine withdrew from public life, while Henry and Anne continued with their zeal for reforming the church in the realm that she had once been queen of. Despite withdrawing from the public eye, Catherine continued to refuse to acknowledge the annulment of her marriage and was steadfast in maintaining that she had never had carnal knowledge of Prince Arthur. As such, she remained an inconvenience to Henry, yet he could not bring himself to get rid of her. She remained like a splinter in his hand that he could not shift until her death on 7 January 1535. Although the marriage had already been annulled, her death, without any question, brought all question marks over his marriage to her to an end. Marriage did not survive death. Catherine's death shut the door on his past, leaving the future dancing before him with sparkling promise. Henry greeted her passing with joy in his heart, shunning any suggestion of mourning by dressing himself in vibrant colour and taking part in jousts, dishonouring the woman who had been nothing but a true and loyal wife to him and a loving and attentive mother to his oldest daughter. Catherine died with quiet grace and dignity, faithful to her God and the tenets of her Catholicism that wedded her to her belief that her marriage was indissoluble. In her heart, she died as Henry's wife, and given how cruel her husband's treatment of her was in the final years of her life, 
It seems somehow unfair that Catherine died without knowing that Henry was already beset by doubts over the legitimacy of his marriage to Anne, fearing that he had been seduced by witchcraft and sorcery into marrying her. Because Anne, like Catherine before her, had failed to produce a son for Henry, having suffered a miscarriage in 1534. He only stayed his hand because Anne was once more pregnant. Perhaps if Catherine had endured life for another 18 months, she would have had the cold consolation of bearing witness to the ignominious end of her rival for her husband's affections, with Anne sacrificing her head to the swordsman's blade in May of 1536. There was a kind of karmic post-mortem justice for Catherine, however, the wronged wife, displaced from the affections of her husband by the other woman in his life. On the day of Catherine's funeral and internment in Peterborough Abbey, Anne miscarried Henry's child. She had been just over three months pregnant, and it was believed that she had carried a male child. Henry's unformed son, expelled from Anne's womb, sealed her fate with her own blood. Catherine was a formidable and loyal woman, a princess of Spain, an ambassador for Europe, a queen of the realm, a proud and loving wife and mother, gifted with beauty, diplomacy and intelligence. Yet, she is best remembered as the queen that Henry divorced, except, as we have seen, it was never a divorce at all. And the legal steps that Henry took to end his marriage and take Anne Boleyn as his wife not only irreversibly changed the religious landscape and power structure of the nation, but had a lasting impact on the law relating to divorce and offered the tantalizing possibility of being able to escape from a loveless or unfulfilling marriage. But Henry's marital machinations were not yet complete. Another marriage loomed in his future, and it too would take its place in the story of divorce. But once again, it was a divorce that was never a divorce at all. Join me in the next episode as we move on to that story. Once again, my name is Deborah Sidaway, and I invite you to follow the podcast series on Twitter at, at Story of Divorce, where you can drop any comments or questions. Thank you for listening, and I hope you join me again soon.